This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 462. I've heard that Denver is such a hot market since I started in 2014. In fact, when I started in 2014, people told me I would never be able to find off-market deals that fit my criteria. I've heard that every single year. And my line to everyone on our team is, if we just stick to the fundamentals, if we follow up with sellers, if we follow up with brokers, if we stay in touch and we deliver on what we say we're going to do, if I'm trying to apply the exact same principles regardless of the asset class or how much more institutional or competitive it gets. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com. Your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my other host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, David the Value Pick Green. What's up, David Green? How you doing, man? <laughs> I may not be the sexiest pick, but I'm probably the most valuable pick. <laughs> Accurately said. That will make much more. That will make much more sense later in today's show because today we are interviewing a guest who is a former. A sports agent. Is that what we call him? He was a mm -hmm. basketball agent and he transitioned from that into real estate investing, started with like smaller deals, flips, got into some medium sized apartments, got into some larger deals. And we dive into his entire journey today. Uh, it is a phenomenal show. So I think you're going to love it. Terrence Doyle is our guest today. Uh, very, very cool, bright guy. And we just cover a ton of really good stuff today, like everything from like how to invest in an expensive market. What do you do when the market's crazy? Should you just not invest? Should you expect lower returns? Terrence says no. And he tells you like five or six things that you should do instead. So that plus a whole lot more to come. But before we get to that, let's get to today's quick tip. tip. Today's quick tip is the exact same as the quick tip that we just released on the last episode, the one that came out on Sunday, is this coming Sunday... Uh, we've been announcing it now for a couple of weeks here in a row. This coming Sunday, we are releasing a special episode of the Bigger Pockets podcast. Uh, and it's all about the actionable process driven things you should be doing in your business to land a deal in the next 90 days. It is the 90 day challenge webinar that I normally do live. We're going to actually be doing it here on the podcast. So I did this a number of years ago, like, I don't know, four three years ago, three, four years ago. And people like so many people went and made huge changes to their business and bought property and just went to a whole new level because of it. So we've updated it, we've revamped it, and we're launching it here on Sunday. So pay attention for that coming up here in a few days. All right. And that said, I think it's time to get in today's show. Anything you want to add before we bring in Terrence, David? No, I thought this was a, a fun show. I thought you and I and Terrence all had a pretty good rapport and got along. So this is one of the funnier shows that we've done. But what does come up, you know, I'll add this, what does come up during the show is that Bigger Pockets has more resources than just this podcast. There is an entire YouTube channel mm. with tons of Bigger Pockets personalities and people that are trying to teach you by sharing yeah. what they're doing. So get on there, subscribe to Bigger Pockets YouTube, find the people that you connect with the best that you vibe the most with and start learning from more than just me and Brandon. There you go. Good, good second quick tip. And uh, yeah, Terrence is actually one of the hosts of a new show on the Bigger Pockets YouTube channels so you'll hear more about that later what's better than low money down no money down now through rent to retirement you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down wait hold on this can't be right we need to double check with zach rental retirement ceo oh hey rob zach how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for zero dollars down <laughs> it's not that complicated rob 
Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. So with that said, let's get into our interview with Terrence Doyle. Terrence, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. Good to have you here. Thanks a lot for having me. I've been watching you guys since the start of my real estate career, 2014, and I'm a big fan and super honored to be here with both you guys. So thanks for having me. Ah, thanks, man. Well, let's jump into it. So the start of your real estate career, you mentioned it, so let's go there. How did you first discover this idea of real estate investing? What were you doing before? And uh, walk us through that kind of beginning mental journey. So early on, you know, in college, I, like we were talking about earlier, you know, I had the opportunity to play college basketball. I was the short white guy at the end of the bench that (laughs) kept his GPA up so that the team was compliant with NCAA regulation. And uh, that was my role. I played it pretty well. So I played college basketball in college. My two of my teammates and I started a company. We franchised it in 2006. And so, you know, we were single 21, 22, making a couple bucks And in 2007, late 2007, you know, one of my other college teammates came to me and said, hey, we're going to start buying foreclosures at the public trustee sale. I was living with roommates 
had no idea what a foreclosure was or a public trustee sale. And I, but it sounded really interesting. And so I was the first investor. We bought a house at the Denver public trustee sale for like $58,000. Three, two or three months later, we sold it for 98 and some change. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is phenomenal. And let's, let's do more of these. So between 2008 and 14, you know, I was able to connect some different things and, and I, we did about a hundred of those a year. So we did roughly 600 flips between 2008 and 14. I still did not know anything about real estate. I just knew that if you went to the auction and you knew how to underwrite, you could make some good money. And so that was my first experience with that. I wouldn't really call it real estate investing. It was more, you know, if you had access to capital and, you know, had a beating heart, you were going to make money. <laughs> so the good old but, days. Uh, in 2000, yeah, exactly. Those were the days. Uh, much has changed as we all know. So 2014, and we had had some good success and, you know, I was really wanting to get married and, you know, just the partnership, we had had a good run for six years and we wanted to do some different things. And so I really wanted to branch out and do larger deals and really just get to know real estate for myself. And so I branched out and really discovered that being able to speak fluent Spanish, you know, my family, my mom is from Bogota, Colombia. I spent a lot of time there growing up and that turned out to be a really pivotal competitive advantage for me. And I was able to kind of put together this group of Hispanic subcontractors. And, you know, I was able to build a scalable solution where we would just do the same flooring, same paint, same cabinets and every single property. I was definitely not an artist, but I, you know, that was something that just came natural to me. And I was able to see like, Hey, there's a lot of value here. Let me kind of lean into this. And so that was really the start. You know, I was able to find properties and, you know, had this really amazing construction process that we kind of built. And that was really the start of it on my own in 2014. Okay. So, I mean, when you were, when you were getting in 08, 09, 10, kind of going through the, the recession there, what was your role in that business at the time? Like, were you running things? Were you just a piece of it? Like, where, where did you fit in? And was that your full-time job? Did you have another one? What was going on there? Yeah. So it was not my full-time job. And I was basically just connecting so we had a pretty good capital source and we, we would move fast with cash is what we like to say. So I connected operators in Tampa, Indiana, Vegas, and LA, and we were the capital. So we had other boots on the ground that they would go to their local auctions. They knew the market. They had their own construction team and we would just fund them. My full-time job at that time was I was an NBA sports agent. So in college, I played college basketball, like we talked about. I got a chance to intern for the president of the Nuggets you know, when I was in college and really just got passionate about the business of sports and everything around that. And so, yeah, I signed my first NBA client in 2009 and real estate was always kind of supporting everything. I mean, we didn't really, we made some money in sports, but you know, we made our real money in real estate and I always knew that. And, you know, before athletes, it was really popular for them to be in businesses and to be uh, more entrepreneurs. You know, that was kind of my thing is I had started a business in college. Two of my really close friends played in the NBA and so I was kind of the guy, you know, around them that was helping them, you know, negotiate their shoe deals or, you know, negotiate their finance agreement with their financial advisor. We got into, you know, so we did things like we got into Facebook stock pre-IPO. And so we were just able to leverage. I really saw like athletes as, you know, with their platform and their influence in local markets as an opportunity to leverage them into other businesses and to real estate and to franchises. And, you know, I just really had an appetite and a kind of a, you know, a desire to, to kind of cultivate that. And so that was, that was my full-time job, 2008 to 2013. And, you know, it was a very, very difficult, very competitive 
uh, industry. One of the things that really separated me, you know, because when I was 22, 23, 24, and you're, you know, you're recruiting these athletes and it's like, you know, I was going to Florida State, I was going to Illinois, I mean, all these big time schools, and you're competing against big time companies with grown men with the massive resumes and really well spoken. I mean, it's, it's high, high sales. Some of the most talented salespeople in the world are either college coaches or sports agents. These guys are crazy, crazy talented. I mean, unbelievable communicators, high energy, can really solve problems at a high level. And so it was extremely challenging. But one of the things that I learned that has really helped me in real estate was the ability to add value. And so what would happen is like, I would build relationships with these college coaches and I had to be able to separate myself from everyone else that was coming to meet them to basically get an introduction to one of the players on their team. Because that's kind of how it happens is college coaches recruit players in high school. They get really close with them in the family. And then when the player's ready to go pro, the family normally and the player comes to them and says, hey, coach, who, who should I interview? Who should I sign with? And so having deep relationships with college coaches is key. Similar to having really good broker relationships, right? That is key because they're going to they're going to refer you to they're going to tell the seller, hey, this is the right buyer. So I was able to, you know, I really cut my teeth and I would say perfected the skill of being able to build relationships quickly, earn trust really quickly and find ways to add value. And at that level, what's interesting is that they're not going to come out and tell you what their problem is or how you can add value. You really have to read between the lines. But that was something I was able to like really develop that I think when I went on off on my own in real estate. I was able to apply that same skill of what is this broker's problem and how can I add value so the next time they have a deal, they're going to send it to me. Yeah, that's smart. That's smart. I was, I was going to actually, one of my questions was what skills did you pick up on during that time that made it difference today? That's, that's smart. So what, like, what tactics or tips do you have for people who want to start building better relationships with brokers, agents, lenders, whoever, uh, that, you, that you can teach them? Like what, what works well for you? Yeah, it's something that I'm continually thinking about, you know, and I think it, I think the, you know, the number one thing is you have to ask questions. You know, when you sit down with a new broker or a lender, I think some of this comes from being from the Midwest and just the way people are just very personable is I want to ask them as many questions as I can to get them talking about themselves, right? I want to get to know them genuinely want to get to know someone asking questions. As you guys have talked about numerous times on the show, people love to talk about themselves. So get them talking. I'm asking questions and I'm just taking notes and observing. And then I'm just following up and being consistent. I think if someone does those two things is just ask questions and is genuinely interested and follows up in a consistent manner, I think you're going to move to the top of the list there of someone they're going to remember. And then as you do those two things, you're noticing and, and documenting kind of, you know, making mental notes of, hey, this person said that they're looking for a house or this person said, you know, they're looking for a contractor or this person said, you know, they're short $10,000 on, you know, to close on this house or whatever the detail may be. But people are always going to have problems no matter what industry you're in. And so if you can document that, build a relationship and just look for ways to solve their problems, you're going to separate yourself from everyone else that wants the same thing from them. And it just came, you know, like I said, I mean, that's one of the things that was amazing about sports was being able to meet coaches, build a relationship, gain trust, and see what I could do to add value to them and solve a problem. And then naturally they were like, hey, I want you to meet this player and this family on my team. I think you'd be great for them. And they even started to refer former players that were unhappy with their representation. And so uh, I think that that has translated into real estate possibly better than anything else you know, that I learned in yeah. sports. That's smart. What are, what are some examples of problems that some of the brokers that you could maybe solve or, or ways that you could provide value to a real estate broker, for example? How, like, what have you done? 
so early on, I was doing more single family. Like in 2014, I was doing duplexes and some triplexes and fourplexes, but, you know, really started to cut my teeth in single family. And, you know, one of the first things that I just thought would, and now it's like common, but in 2014, I would basically go to an agent and say, hey, if you can find me a flip, I'm going to, you can list it for me at, you know, a really good commission. So they were double, they were able to double end deals. Now that's really common. But in 2014, in the markets I was in, it really wasn't common. And so when I came to them and said, hey, look, help me find the deal, bring it to me. I'll make it really easier for you because I'll be able to close quickly and you're going to get it back in 90 or 120 days. That was something that quickly got me a lot of deal flow. You know, brokers knew that I could close. And obviously once I closed on one or two on time and they saw that everything I said came true, then they were even more motivated. And then as I transitioned into multifamily and small, you know, I started out with, 10, 20, 30 units, so mid-size multifamily, which was a different set of brokers. And so I had to reinvent myself again and try and figure out, okay, what are some of the problems and what are some things that I can do for them now that everyone can kind of close quickly and, you know, all these things, it's kind of more of a level playing field. And, you know, what I found was that they wanted to buy houses off market. So then I was able to help them find, you know, connect them with wholesalers, you know, because Denver's appreciated pretty rapidly. And a couple of guys were like, hey, can you help me find a house for my family? And then a couple guys needed help on inspection items or, or needed help with a really good countertop guy or a really good flooring guy. And so I was able to use my strength in construction to add value to what they were trying to do, which was, you know, find a really good deal on a home or get construction done cheaper. Some other examples that come to mind are they wanted to travel to South America. And so I was able to, you know, because I was from Colombia, I was able to introduce them and get them discounts on their hotels, introduce them to people that I knew in the city. So just little things, you know, I think it doesn't have to be something big. I mean, even just referring them or getting them into a restaurant they couldn't get into. Or, you know, I think one time I got um, a brokerage team here, like courtside tickets to the Nuggets because I had a relationship there. So I think anything along the lines of, you know, if I knew someone was interested in basketball or like football and wanted to go to a Broncos game and I had a relationship there, I think it comes back to the fundamentals of asking questions, getting them to talk about themselves being consistent. And then through those two things, I was able to, oh, this person likes basketball. This person needs help with this. And, you know, you just kind of put that together and you have to be careful. You know, you want to make sure that you're doing it in a really natural way. You're not expecting something in return and it's, and it's genuine. And I think a lot of good things, you know, have come from that. And, and I do think that that works. Something that you mentioned that I think doesn't get mentioned enough is that successful people solve problems. And when Brandon and I have people come to us that are having a hard time getting started or getting their first property or just having success, they're often asking questions that if you look deeper are indicative of the fact they're trying to avoid having to solve a problem. They're saying, give me a system. Just give me a step. Tell me what to go do. I don't want to have to figure something out. But in any industry, what the best people do is solve either tougher problems or more problems than everyone else does. That's how you earn a higher income. So Terrence is representing professional athletes. They have a problem where they have a short window of their career. They're in a highly competitive environment where other people want their job and they are trying to get as much money as they can during that window while the team is trying to pay them as little money as they can and keep as much, much flexibility as they can to replace that person with somebody else if they want. And so there's a struggle there with a lot at stake. And if Terrence steps in and solves the problem, he's going to get paid more. That's really just everything in life that you look at. That's the case. I'm curious, Terrence, in your journey that you went, you said you went from single family to midsize to, to big deals. 
Can you talk a little bit about the different problems that you had to learn to solve at each step of the way that allowed you to sort of ascend into these bigger deals? So many problems. It's unreal. <laughs> so many problems. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic topic. And, you know, just going back, you know, I think the initial problem was, you know, with single family, you know, when you're trying to scale and you really want to build something, and I know you guys have both been there, you know, I had 10 or 12 projects going at the same time. and I'm running around all over Denver which is pretty big. So I'm spending hours in the car and just trying to manage all the details. You know, when you're selling single family homes in Denver and the average purchase price is four, five, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000, the details really matter. The last 10% is the hardest. And so that was a massive challenge. The, the capital obviously was not a challenge. There was very liquid finding private money lenders and the construction, you know, so it wasn't so much a capital thing. It was more of a, how do you run that organization efficiently and manage the details? And so quickly, that's where multifamily, smaller multifamily became really attractive because I could buy one 30-unit building and I was doing 30 bathrooms and 30 kitchens all at one address. So naturally, it was much more efficient. And so, but the problem there became capital, right? So in Denver, and I was buying, I think the, the first larger deal that I bought in Denver was $2.5 million. And at the time, that was like an insurmountable number. I didn't have any capital partners. I didn't have LPs. I, w I didn't even know what syndication was back then. This is 2015. So I was like, oh my gosh, what am I like? How am I going to come up? I think I had to come up with $500,000 for the down payment. And then the renovation was like 400. So $900,000. And I was used to doing flips where we would get private money, fund 100% of the purchase, and then we would bring the construction. So even if we, you know, if we had 10 projects going on, we were talking about $400,000, but you could time it differently, right? You didn't have to have that all at once. So, so the equity and the construction when you get into smaller multifamily was definitely a challenge. And then the second challenge is lending. Lenders are much more difficult, right? I mean, I'm not W-2. I've actually never had, I've never been employed as a W-2. So bankers, it's difficult, right? It's very challenging trying to get that first loan. And I actually had to go to Des Moines, Iowa. My first two multifamily projects that I did in Denver, I did with a local bank in Des Moines that knew me and you know that I knew what I had done. And it was more of a personal relationship. And they flew out, saw the projects, knew that I could execute on it. And they took a chance. And then once you do that, the lending gets easier. But that first two, first one or two are very, very difficult. So I'd say the challenges going from single family to small multi was getting, getting comfortable with the money, the purchase price, the equity needed, and the construction, and then the lending. Much more difficult, a lot of hurdles there. And, you know, bankers are defensive by nature. I like to say they love to check boxes, which as an entrepreneur, I just want to do deals. I'm not looking to check all your boxes. So that's, that's, that's a challenge. And then as I got really comfortable with that and I started to do 10 to 20 of those a year, that had the relationships with the brokers and now brokers are calling me and now I have a full pipeline and now bankers all are calling me and they want to all lend to me. And so now I'm kind of in the same position where I've had to reinvent myself the last two years. I'm trying to do larger deals. Obviously, everyone wants to do larger deals. So there's a lot more competition. They're much more institutional. It's a different set of brokers. So I had just you know, built these relationships with these brokers that I'd solved problems for, built relationships, and I'm at the top of their list. And now I'm having to do it again for this new set of brokers because it's different. It's not the same guys that are, you know, that are selling those. And, and the lending actually, I think, gets easier the larger the deals go. But the equity checks get you know, they grow by multiple zeros. And so that's been something in the last two years that I've started doing is syndicating, trying to aggregate capital. So I'm having to have relationships with some privately wealthy individuals, maybe some family offices that, uh, you know, I have in the pipeline 
to be able to fund these larger, you know, we're doing 20, 30, $40 million deals now that you have to bring 10, $15 million of equity with the construction. So obviously that's a much different person. And so I've had to learn how to navigate, you know, even though lending got easier, raising the money got more challenging and getting the deal, in my opinion, is actually the hardest thing right now in these markets, especially Denver. I mean, Denver is so hot. There's so much institutional, even international money chasing multifamily in Denver. There's no yield anywhere. So multifamily, I think, similar to mobile home parks, is kind of like the rising star in the commercial asset class. There's yield, people, there's a housing shortage. And so that's made it even more difficult that everyone's moving to Denver, all the money's chasing Denver. And now I've got all these other people from all these other parts of the country that are all trying to buy the same deals I'm buying. So trying to separate myself right now, I'm still, you know, I'm still in the process of doing that, trying to apply those same fundamentals to standing out and trying to add value to these brokers so that I can move to the top of the line. Well, so this is the uh, thing we deal with all the time at Open Door Capital, you know, in our in our businesses, as it gets more and more competitive, we face this question, do we diversify into other asset classes? So we're going to multi we're going to add multifamily on this year as well because because of this. Or do you do you lower your return expectations? Like are we resetting? Do we need it as a as a I don't know, not say like we're leading the charge, but should we be lowering expectations for investors for LPs going forward because like the good old days are gone or do we just do fewer deals? Like how, how do you feel on this whole, cause there's a, a problem with a lot of syndicators right now is it's just so darn competitive. It's driving the ability to get deals. Yeah. So competitive and the supply, there's such an undersupply. So our, you know, our business model is we own the construction, we own the property management. So back in the day when we were doing flips, I was actually doing flips and because I had these relationships on the ground. So I was doing flips in like Louisville and Dallas and, you know, Indiana. And we were doing stuff in South Carolina and Denver and Iowa and all these different markets. And I love, I love other, there's so many markets that I love. And if everything worked out on paper, uh, if everything worked out in real life, the way it looks on paper, I mean, I would be doing deals all over. The problem was I lost a lot of money trusting other people with the operations and the details of construction and property management. And so we've really condensed to Denver and Des Moines because we know the market, we own the construction, we own the property management. And so what we've done is just had to be patient. We've, you know, as we just had Sterling White on our show, tribe of multifamily mentors here that we'll, we'll get into later, but we've had to get creative on sourcing deals. So RLPs, you know, what's interesting, as you know, this Brandon dealing with you know, privately wealthy individuals that in, in open door is, you know, they don't want to hear, they think a pandemic or they think a recession and they're like, I should be getting better returns. So the idea that we could even <laughs> bring that up is not something they want to entertain. They want better returns. Uh, they, they're seeing all kinds of deals, you know, family offices, institutional investors, they're seeing incredible deal flow. They're not even open to the topic of a lower return. And so that's not something that we've thought about. You know, we're just having to stick to the fundamentals be very consistent, build relationships, repeat that, and put ourselves in a position to win. Just creating, just filling the pipeline and putting ourselves in the right position. And hopefully, you know, it'll, the ball will go our way more than it won't. But yeah, it's difficult and we're just being patient and sticking to the fundamentals. So let's talk about the fundamentals a bit. I mean, like to, to go back to a basketball analogy, right? Like there's these, like the fundamental drills that we're going to be working on that are going to improve our game. So let's, Let's talk about from knowing that our audience is people who are buying their, you know, their first house. There's some people trying to buy a 20, 20 unit, some people trying to buy a hundred unit, right? And, and everything in between. So what are the fundamentals that can apply across the board to everyone 
for investing in a crazy expensive market. A couple of them I'll just pull out that you already mentioned. One, you really focus down into a mark, a couple markets, right? You got really specific on where you're investing. You're not just everywhere. So that's a good one we can pull out. Um, and I want to dive a little bit more into that. Another one you said is get creative finding deals, like get creative in your pipeline. So maybe those are a couple points we can dig on and maybe you can kind of, we can go through a few more and, you know, David, you as well. But uh, why don't we start with the the focusing on a market? How broad are you looking right now? Uh, and why is that? Why did you say you're focusing on fewer? Because it, it sounds like, sorry, logic should be the opposite, right? Like, oh, I'm having a harder time finding deals. Go to more markets, expand bigger. But that doesn't seem to be what you said. So why is that? And what's your views? So I'm going to answer that question. I want to tell a story. So fundamentals, this is one of my favorite topics. And surfing, you're a surfer. Now I heard- oh, uh, that's, that's a stretch. That's a stretch. That's a stretch. I can stand no, I know, Well, you surfboard. post about it on Instagram. So look, <laughs> I stand with a surfboard. I stand. I stand with well, a surfboard. Well, you stand next to, yeah. Well, you're 6'5". You look like you're, you got the beard. You got, <laughs> got that exactly. look. But what's interesting is I heard Jerry Seinfeld talking about this a couple months ago. And he was saying, you know, professional surfers are actually just professional paddlers. Right. Mm-hmm. They've just perfected paddling and they're and then they become a surfer and basketball and sports. And I think life is the exact same way. And, you know, a story that hopefully will resonate with a lot of viewers that like basketball is that, you know, I represented a client in 2012. We were in Orange County and he would work out with Kobe Bryant a few days a week. So we get to the gym at like 6 a.m. I'm really tired, but I'm you know like, hey, I'm really excited to watch Kobe work out without trying to be like make it awkward. And. Kobe worked out with his trainer for two hours on one side of the court and he never shot the basketball one time. Mm -hmm. I was there, never shot the basketball one time in two hours. He literally worked on one move on both sides of the court and that was it. He, and he was drenched in sweat two hours, never shot the basketball one time. And his focus there was he had missed a shot. I think the year before that could have won the finals for them. And he was working on this move uh, it was like a pivot move with just real footwork. So he's only working on like the basic fundamentals, like things that kids in third grade would work on. And that like cemented this idea in my mind that like if the best basketball player in the world shows up at a gym and works on one thing for two hours, you know, how much more should I, as someone that's like trying to become the best at something, really just focus on the b- most basic fundamentals and master that and master the fundamentals. And so the fundamentals in real estate and sourcing deals, I think are the same thing. It's, you have to know the market. I think if you're really spread out, kind of going to your counterintuitive point is like when I was doing deals in eight different markets and we were funding, it got so scattered and there were so many zip codes and so many neighborhoods to know. You could never, I mean, it would take a lifetime to know all of those markets. But because we're doing deals in Denver and Des Moines, I grew up in Des Moines, my brother's there, my dad's there, my sister's there. And I live in Denver. I've been here for 16 years now. Now, if someone brings me a deal in Des Moines, either my brother, myself, or my dad are going to know that area, or we already own a property there, or we did own a property. So we're going to know what the tenant is going to be like. We're going to know, you know, if it's historic, we're going to know, you know, if the city has any, you know, special zoning there, you know, we're going to know the age of that building. We're going to know the way it was built. We're going to know if it has any quirky electrical or plumbing issues. Same thing in Denver, right? If someone sends me a zip code I most likely have done a deal or own a deal in that zip code really close to that street. And so I'm going to know. And so having that local knowledge just accelerates the ability to underwrite really quickly and know who the players are in that area, right? Every market has three or four people that I think 
control the deal flow. And so when you can go deeper and you really focus in, you're going to get to know those people. And then from there, it just comes to how do you stay top of mind through communication, asking questions, being transparent about that, and then being consistent and looking to solve problems for them. If you do those things in that market, you're going to see deal flow regardless of how hot the market is. I mean, I've heard that Denver is such a hot market since I started in 2014. In fact, when I started in 2014, people told me I would never be able to find off-market deals that fit my criteria. I've heard that every single year in both markets. And, you know, my line to everyone on our team is if we just stick to the fundamentals, if we follow up with sellers, if we follow up with brokers, if we stay in touch and we deliver on what we say we're going to do, if we, you know, sometimes we have to tighten up our terms, right? So I think right now what we're doing is we're trying to you know, go through due diligence the fastest. We're trying to maybe get a little bit more aggressive on earnest money. We're trying to have lender relationships already locked in, right? So if I hear about a deal and I know that the seller is really motivated by convenience and speed and certainty, which you, you're going to hear, you know, people are going to start to hear a lot more, you know, certainty. They want to know that you can close. So naturally, what do we do is we just reach out to banks ahead of time and say, hey, there's this deal. Here are the numbers on it. Is this something that fits your box and how quickly can you move? They're going to want us to close in under 35 days or 40 or whatever, whatever the, the facts are for that particular deal. And so, again, fundamental is just go, reaching out, making sure that I have everything that I need in line. So that way, when the seller's ready to transact, I've got my ducks in a row and I'm ready to move forward. So I hope that that answered your question regarding fundamentals. But I'm, doing, I'm trying to apply the exact same principles regardless of the asset class or how much more institutional or competitive it gets. That's so good. Let me just summarize what you said. I took some notes here while you're talking. Number one, again, knowing your market, just knowing like where you're going. And to, to bring up a, a point that I, I, I get all the time asked me, they say, what's the best real estate market to invest in? And the general answer is that the best market to invest in is the one that you know, right? Like, like I, I was really good at Grays Harbor, Washington. It's like this armpit of Washington state, <laughs> terrible little location, right? But <laughs> I can make money there like no one else because I knew that market better. And if you were in Seattle and you just came to Grays Harbor to go buy real estate, yeah, you'd fail. And if I wouldn't right now went and bought Detroit, I'd probably fail. I don't know Detroit, but I, I know people in Detroit are just cleaning up there right now because they know Detroit and you in Denver. If I, like, I look at Denver, I'm like, there's no way I would invest in Denver right now. Cause I don't know Denver. It's not cause it's not good to market. It's because I don't know it. So number one is yeah, knowing your market, you were talking about being aggressive on your offer terms. I think that's great. And being like, you know, willing to, to do what the seller wants there to make yourself stand out. That applies to everybody here. Uh, faster speed, both with closing and with making offers. That's huge. More certainty with your lending, which is huge. And then getting all your ducks in a row, all your paperwork, all everything, making it easy on everyone. Those are points that everybody can apply, whether you're trying to buy your first deal or your hundredth deal. This stuff matters. It's just doing a good job at your job of, of real estate. So anyway, thank you for sharing that stuff. So David, anything you want to add on there? I mean, you're the guy that wrote the long distance book on like knowing your market or anything in there. What I was thinking when I was reading this is I bet I could create a basketball analogy for all five of these things that Terrence <laughs> just went over. So know your market and focus there would be know your game as a player, know what your shots are, know where you're confident and, and what you shouldn't be doing. More aggressive on offer terms would be like you're always attacking the offense. The cool thing about basketball is that you always are aggressive, but you don't have to make mistakes. If there's nothing there, you pull it back and you you move around. But you get in trouble when you get uh, lazy and you wait for stuff to come to you. The game works best when you are attacking the defense and forcing them to be in a position that they don't want to be in which is similar to putting yourself in a position where you find a seller who needs to sell that house more than you need to buy one and you're in a position of advantage. 
Faster speed to closing and offers is obviously moving the ball, playing the game a whole lot faster. More certainty with lending would be taking high percentage shots and, and getting them through your offense and then having your ducks in a row would be having a team around you that knows how you guys play the game. It gets you the ball in the positions where you want it and you do the same for them. So what I love about what Terrence gave us was he basically said, I watched how Kobe Bryant played the game and he took what Kobe did and he's now applied it to real estate. These are the moves that you should practice. I actually want to see if we can take a step backwards and talk about why Terrence has developed these specific moves for the market that we're in, because the rules of the game dictate the way that we play it. And we've given people a playbook for what to do. I kind of want to talk about the difference between the choices investors have. What a lot of people are seeing is this is obviously a hot market. Some cities are hotter than others. That typically is where the big wins come from. So people have the... the Decision to make, do I invest in what is a hot market is and possibly get my butt kicked making a mistake? Or do I go to the rough markets where I can play it safe and I can get more cash flow, but my upside is severely limited. Like you mentioned, you were doing flips in Louisville. You're much more likely or less likely to get hurt in a market like that. You're also much less likely to put points on the board. So I think Denver is the perfect place that we can start with because that city really sums up what happens when tech money moves into somewhere. And uh, capital floods into a market and like the wave that you sort of see coming. Terrence, what's your opinion on if people should be investing in a market like that or if they should avoid the craziness and they should go somewhere safer? That's an excellent question and pretty loaded. I hope that I can do it justice. Should people invest in Mark in Denver? Absolutely. But then they should pause and say, okay, what what are my goals? Right? You guys have talked about it. You know, just the fundamentals of really just being self-aware of understanding your own personal situation. So if you're in San Francisco and someone has millions of dollars to deploy, then yeah, Denver's a great market. I think over the next 10 years, Denver will have more growth than probably a lot of cities in California and has better tax treatment, a lot of other advantages. So should someone with a lot of liquidity come to Denver? Absolutely. Should they do it on their own? Probably not, because you're going to face a lot of competition from people that have liquidity and have better market knowledge and have a competitive advantage way more than you. So I think, you know, if you're looking to invest out of state in Denver, I think you have to have a local partner or you have to be investing in a syndication or doing something with someone that really knows Denver. Because, you know, even though Denver has grown, it's just like where you guys are at, you know, every market, you know, regardless of how large it could feel or seem, it still is really small when it comes to the real estate community. You know, Denver's big, but in the commercial multifamily space, there's like five or six companies or groups that really control who's getting access to the deals who's looking at the deals, who's lending on them. I mean, it's very small at the top, you know, as you grow. And even on the single family side, it's still run by maybe four or five brokerages. You know, if you're one of, if you're with an agent in one of those four or five, you're going to get access and really good service and you're going you're gonna to see the right thing and you're going to get the right advice. But if you're working with someone that doesn't do a lot of volume, you're going to get crushed. And so I, I like the idea of investing in markets that you either have, and the competitive advantage comes down to, do you know someone on the ground that has a competitive advantage? You know, like I'm not in Des Moines, but my brother is. So naturally I have a competitive advantage and that's why we have been able to place capital in Des Moines and we've done extremely well. But without my brother there or my father or having grown up there, I'm, I'm at a massive disadvantage, right? Cause Des Moines is small. There's very few people that run it. You know, that has a thing called rental inspections with the city, which is extremely difficult. And a lot of capital that's come out outside institutional capital has gotten completely crushed because they did not understand the rules of the game. They did not understand 
what the opponent, the city, was going to throw at them. And so they went, went into that game unprepared. And so I think that you have to really, really analyze, you know, what are my goals? If it's someone looking for a house hack or looking for their first investment, I'm, I'm with Brandon. you got to invest where you know or with someone that has a competitive advantage somewhere else. And those are things that, you know, every investor, you know, has to decide for themselves. But I've, you know, when we do the Q&A on the Tribe of Multifamily Mentors, you know, this question comes up a lot. You know, should I go out of state? My market's appreciated, blah, 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 blah. It's overpriced. And I just think that you have to really look at all of the data. You can't just look at price, right? People love to throw around, oh, man, the price per door has gone through the roof. But they're not really taking into account what the difference between the cap rate is and the debt. Because actually, the spread is larger now than it's ever been between what you can buy and what you're getting debt at. You know, back in 2014-15, debt was at 5%, and cap rates were at like 55 6%. So your spread was a lot lower. Now you can buy a 5 cap or maybe high 4s, and debt's at 3. So you actually have a bigger spread. So I would say there's actually the market's even better now. But sometimes investors, you know, get caught up with like one or two data points, and they're not looking at the full picture. And I think that just comes down to, which is why we named the show tribe of multifamily mentors is have a mentor, have a coach, have a partner, have someone that is an expert, has more experience, has maybe some gray hair, or has had enough experience to give them gray hair. And, and that's where you should start. You know, I think if you're just looking at price per door or the purchase price on a home, you're not looking at the full picture and you're not going to make the right decision if you're not looking at the full picture or you have a really good coach. Terrence, can you break down why it's relevant that there's a spread between cap rate and interest rate? Yeah, absolutely. So the cap rate is, you know, it's a function of the expenses in the NOI, the net operating income. And so properties trade at a multiple of that, that is the cap rate. And so NOI, net, net operating income, does not factor in debt. So you have all the income after your expenses. And the lower the debt, the more the distributable cash flow you have. That's what you can live on, right? That's what you can either send to your own bank account or send to your investors, which is a good thing. And so the cheaper debt gets, and as cap rates stay pretty fixed, close to that 5% or you know, somewhere in there, depending on the market, you have more distributable cash flow there between what your NOI is, your income after expenses, and what the debt is. And so the larger that spread, that's a great market. And right now, we have a pretty good spread because of how cheap debt is, especially on multifamily. You know, a single family, I think, has floated a little bit. And I think if depending on whether it's a jumbo or what you're looking, what price point and which market... I think that is is bumpy, but actually multifamily, we're getting quoted right now in the high twos. And, you know, on a twenty, thirty, forty million dollar purchase, you know, being able to lock in a high two percent interest rate is unheard of. So the punchline for me is yes, prices have gone up. Yes, market is hot, markets are hot, yes, there's competition, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't still buy in your backyard just because of those things. Yeah, I think part of the reason markets are hot right now is because debt is so cheap. And so when well, you made a great point, when you just look at the price, it looks like this is ridiculous, but that's sort of an amateur way of looking at a real estate asset is how much does it cost? What you really want to be looking at is how much does it bring me in a return? And the reason the market is hot is because debt is so cheap, which is good for you, right? If you're able to buy something at a five cap, which means you would get a 5% return on your money with no debt, but you can borrow money on it at two and a half or 2.9% interest rate. The, the cash flow you're going to see after you take on that debt is still really high, which is exactly why everybody's putting their money into real estate. There's also fears that we could be going into bubbles in different asset classes, and real estate's the safest one. So it's going to be valued at a premium. 
I, what I love about what you're saying is that you can't be simple enough as to just say, oh, prices are high, so I'm going to wait for them to come down. You got to understand the fundamentals of what's going on that's causing these high prices because that might still, even though the prices are high, it might still be the best and safest investment for a lot of people. Would you agree? I got a really good analogy for you. You're going to appreciate this since you had mm -hmm. the five points and related to basketball. It'd be the equivalent of, you know, so just looking at price point is the equivalent of walking to a gym with your team. And you look across and they're warming up and they're all tall. They're uh -huh. all 6'5", like Brandon. They got beards. They look serious. And you're like, whoa, we're 5'10". Professional surfer. They look like professional surfers. Yeah, they look like professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit bulkier. And you're uh, like, let's get out of here. These guys are taller. We're out. Without even watching them run or mm -hmm. dribble, you know, you don't even know if they can tie their shoes. But you walk into the gym and you see a taller, more athletic looking team. And you're like, oh, these guys are tall. We're out. Let's go home. You haven't even like done any research, you know, you're just looking at, you're just scratching the surface. You have to go deeper than just purchase price. You have to look at the full picture. You know, I've, I've been talking about the hell house that I bought back, I don't know, 15 years ago now, or one of the very first properties I ever bought. I bought it because it was $45,000. And I was like, that's a crazy cheap price for a house. That's amazing. That, that deal was the worst deal I ever did because as, as an amateur, I was only looking at price. So it works both ways, right? Like, oh, that's too expensive. I don't want to buy that because it's too much. Or that must be a good deal because it's cheap. It's got to be good rather than like you say, you've said multiple times, look at the full picture. Like, what does that, what does that look like? Uh, so anyway, super, super important point for everybody, no matter what stage they're at is not to get overwhelmed by these, I don't know, call them vanity metrics because they are important, but they're not as important. Now, one thing I, I do worry about, and I'm curious of both of your thoughts on this, David, you said it a minute ago that one of the reasons real estate seems to be doing so well right now, and it just continues to creep higher and higher in value is because debt is so low, right? And because we, because you can, I just got a, I just got a uh, commercial loan at two point, I think it was like 2.89 or something like that. It's crazy, right? Like nuts. Because of that, it keeps the price of real estate high. What happens then if and when they start raising interest rates go up to four, five, six, seven? Again, are we going to see a drop in values because of that? Uh, are cap rates going to start going up dramatically because of that? Or what do you guys expect there? That's an excellent question. I think from a macroeconomic standpoint, for the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates, we would have to be in a major economic boom. You know, right now, the entire world is getting crushed. The monetary situation around the world is everyone's printing money, everyone's struggling. And so I think our Fed has come out and said they're not going to raise rates for a year or two years. You know, they want to see inflation. They want to see the cost of things go up. They want to see unemployment get back down. They want to see wages growing. You know, we, we need to see we need to see massive growth across the country, especially in cities like L.A., New York, Seattle, Chicago, Minneapolis that have just been decimated by the last 12 months. I mean, I was just in Alabama with my college buddies on a golf trip and downtown Birmingham. And I and I love Alabama, but downtown Birmingham was a ghost town. Uh, there was one restaurant open in the Birmingham airport, one because everyone's on unemployment and their minimum wage is so low that they're making more money being at home. Now, I'm not going to get into it's not a political, you know, discussion at all, but the simple fact is there's a lot of people not working right now. And so, in order for interest rates to go up, there's going to have to be a massive economic boom. And so then what's going to happen when people are making more money? Rents will go up, right? So, it wouldn't be the worst thing. If interest rates start to creep back up, that means that the Federal Reserve is saying, "Hey, Things are coming back. People are starting to pay more for things. People are starting to make more money, earn more income. And we can now raise interest rates and, and rents are going to go up. And rents normally go up disproportionate to, to debt. And so cap rates actually could stay the same because rents would jump more than 
in more than the debt. And so I think if interest rates go up, it's actually a good thing for us because Denver is has a massive undersupply of workforce housing. If the middle class and the working class can be making more money, then they're going to be paying more in rent. And naturally, that's going to be better. You know, for me, if I have 10-year debt locked in at 3% and rents are going up, I don't really need to sell, right? But if rents go up enough and cap rates maybe uh, expand a little bit, then I'm still going to get much more for the property because rents will have gone up disproportionate to debt. And so I think debt going up would signal a good thing. That's a great answer. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I wasn't even thinking about the rent issue, but yeah, if, if interest rates go up, I think, I think all, most of us expect rents to go up with inflation just in general to go right. a little bit nuts the next decade. I, I think it's a very good likelihood. David, anything you want to add on that? Great point. It's the, I had the same question when I first started investing and I had a wise person with some gray hairs that broke this down for me. And they basically said, when interest rates go up, it's to slow down inflation. If inflation has gone up, the last thing you need to worry about are interest rates because you're going to be making rent on increases on all 50 units that you just bought, not just this percentage that you're looking at. So it's very hard for in, for interest rates to go up high enough they could ever catch up with the inflation that you've already seen. And then the next guy isn't going to be able to buy the property, so banks aren't going to be able to make loans on it, and they're not going to do that. Yeah, I, I think it's hard for me to envision a scenario, not that it's not possible because anything is possible. We're living in wild times. It's hard for me to envision a scenario where debt goes up, but rent doesn't go up even more. You know, it'd be we'd be in a really tough economic spot because basically that just slows down the economy. And the last thing that anyone wants to do is slow down our economy. We need to fuel it. And the way to fuel it is to keep debt low. So people are like us are willing to take more chances, do more projects. And investors and institutions are wanting to do more to create more jobs, which then can fuel, you know, people are spending more. So I think as long as rents are going up and the economy is booming, debt going up is not a bad thing. Now, if debt goes up and rents are not going up and the economy isn't booming, then we're, then, you know, then I think there's going to be some challenges there. And I think to avoid that, the fundamental right now and the smart thing to do would be either refinance if you have more expensive debt, refinance. Or, you know, when you're buying, just lock in, you know, longer term cheap debt, you know, because cycles normally go every, you know, the cycles normally last like 24 to 36 months. So if you lock in 10 year debt, I think it's going to be hard to get stuck in a bad spot. So I think those would be two fundamental things you could do right now, either refinance or when you're purchasing, lock in cheap debt, seven minimum 10 years. Yeah, I think in that longer term debt, the longer you can go right now, I think is a wise move. What are you seeing, Brandon, on the on the mobile home space? Like, what kind of debt are you seeing out there? Are you guys able to get ten year fixed right now? We are. Um, we I think we just the two nine we just locked in was a ten year fixed. Uh, what we're finding is the nicer parks. It's super easy. Like the finance is just there. Like we get nicer properties. Uh, what we're struggling, the struggle we had, and we had to pivot was the crappier properties because like that dried up very much like the people that were willing to take these risks on the on the rough ones so now those are still a lot more difficult they're all recourse they're all they're a little more uh shorter term so we've really pivoted a lot to like just buy nicer parks like most of our stuff has a a lot nicer a lot larger because we really want that non-recourse fanny freddy you know like like nice for sure uh, institutional yeah. debt so yeah it's a uh, it's been interesting Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. 
That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. I'm curious, like shifting a little bit, we don't have a lot of time left in today's show. You know, 2020 threw a lot of real estate investors into panic mode. Uh, and a lot of people just stopped investing. They just said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wait for this thing to stop. Did, what was 2020 like for you? Uh, did you just sit on the sidelines and wait? Did you grow at all? Did you shrink? What happened during that time? 2020 was wild, man. It was wild. I had a, I had a baby boy in May, oh. uh, Noah. And uh, that was in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, the hospital kicked us out after 24 hours. And uh, we moved houses. Uh, my wife and I had bought a home the year before. We had renovated it. So we were moving, having a baby. And I was trying to grow a company and raise money. You know, so it was wild. I did the opposite. You know, I think, you know, when I, in 2008, I was 
22, 23 years old, I had no idea what was going on in the world. You know, my dad, I remember my dad called me one time, it was late 2007. He said, hey man, you need to be careful. A lot of people are losing their jobs. You know, the economy is looking bad. Like you should start saving, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, dad, what are you talking about? We're selling franchises. We're killing it. Like, I don't even know, like recession. I don't even know what that means. And so, you know, through the recession, I was single, had no risk, had no responsibility, and we crushed it. I didn't even feel it, right? We were buying houses at foreclosures. I mean, we were, you know, printing money. And then this last year was the first time that I was like, oh my gosh, this is what this looks like to like have a mortgage and have a family and everyone is, uh, you know, going into like a bunker and super, there was fear everywhere, fear everywhere. And it, it was not comfortable. I lost, uh, within a seven day period, there was probably three or four deals we had under contract to sell. And we were probably going to make, I don't know, multiple seven figures on those sales. And they all terminated every single one. And I was sitting there like, oh my gosh, what are we, we going to do? So it wasn't comfortable. It was extremely difficult, challenging, all those things. And this sounds like the right thing to do, but really I just went back to the fundamentals and I said, hey, look, if everyone else is afraid, I need to get aggressive. I've got the infrastructure in place. I've got the capital. I've got the construction. I've got the property management. I really believe in Denver. We've got the right relationships. If the right deal comes across, we're going to buy it. And so we actually had the best year we've ever had. You know, I mean, we, we bought $35 million worth of real estate in Denver. I was able to buy, you know, some of the best deals I've ever done. And in the middle of the pandemic, I mean, while, you know, I, I actually, someone called me about a home and the lady had purchased it a year before for maybe like 1.1 million in a really great part of Denver. I bought it for 735 put 35,000 into it. And the fear was jumbo loans, right? That was the fear. Everyone's like, oh, we don't want to touch that home because no one will be able to buy it. I bought it in May. We sold it in July for like 1.2, 1.3 million, put 35,000 into it. I mean, it was insane. We bought an apartment complex for a hundred a door and I sold it literally like 90 days later for like 125 a door. Didn't even do anything to it. And so, you know, I think that again, having, you know, we had the pieces in place and I stuck to the fundamentals and I said, look, if a deal comes across my desk that meets this criteria, and I knew what my criteria was and I was really clear about it, and people were calling me. They said, hey, are you still buying? Great, because we have we think that this guy wants to sell. This guy's really scared. And there was fear everywhere. Now, I didn't go crazy. I definitely changed the underwriting. I made sure that we had bank debt. You know, I made sure that I could execute and close on what I, you know, what I wanted to do. And once I checked those boxes and had those fundamentals in place, yeah, I mean, we did what I still think are some of the best deals that I've ever done. And I wish that I would have had more capital. I wish I would have been able to do more last year. You know, I think, you know, everyone says that, right? Warren Buffett's big thing is when everyone's, when everyone's buying, you should be selling. When everyone's selling, you should be buying. And that sounds good. And the book, you know, says that everyone knows that, but it's so much more difficult in the moment when everyone is afraid and the news is bad and everyone's freaking out and your wife, it's like chaos. It's so much harder to actually execute on on pulling the trigger. This is why everyone's like, I'm just waiting for the market to decline again so I can jump in. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, you're not. You're gonna be freaked out like everyone else is. You're gonna be like, you know, I think real estate's a bad idea and you're not gonna do it. And you're gonna wait until it goes up again. And you're like, oh, I should have done it back in, you know, like, yeah, invest now, invest later, invest in good deals anytime and you'll always be fine then. Well, Terrence had a great example of a house you picked up for 735 and then you put 35 into it. So you're all in for 70, 70. And the reason it was available to you at that price was that other investors were thinking no one's going to, they can't get a jumbo loan because when COVID first hit, that's exactly what happened. All the jumbo lenders, in fact, everyone we worked with in my mortgage company literally said, no more loans. We're going to wait and see what goes on. 
And that does send a shockwave of fear through the market. But fear is always a temporary emotion. It does not stay there all the time. I mean, Terrence, you played sports. You know what it's like to go from being heartbroken to think you're going to lose to one play and you're like, they can't stop us. We're on, right? That's just how emotions work. And so the people that recognize that and operated out of faith, I know real estate is going to bounce back. This is how it works. That took action, made half a million dollars on one deal. I just did the same thing in Maui. COVID shut down the short-term rental market in Hawaii. It was very hard to travel there. Hawaii made it very difficult for anyone to go. So everyone that had short-term rentals was getting hammered. And I walked into that market to go buy short-term rentals when there was a bunch of owners that were thinking, "This, I need to get rid of this thing. I'm losing money every month. And I bought it and I had a long escrow, but each of them had appreciated by over six figures just during the period of time we were in escrow. It was the very same principle you're describing. So like Brandon said, the responsible professional investors, to use a Stephen Pressfield phrase, recognize when everybody else is feeling afraid and that's when they go take action. And you know the people that are not professionals because when it switches and you have the 2010 when, oh my God, there's deals everywhere, nobody's buying them because they're hearing everybody else say the same thing. It's hopeless. It's going down even more. Don't catch a falling knife. And then those opportunities pass. Yeah, and it's hard because you have to go against your entire being saying it's screaming, no, no, no. And they're, and it's trying to like talk you out of it. You know, it's like taking a cold shower in the morning. Like my mind is always like, you don't need to do that. You can do this. Why don't you, you know, why don't you go stretch? Why don't you, you know, like try to talk you out of doing the thing that you know is what you need to do the right thing. And it's the exact same thing, uh, when buying, when everyone else is selling, it's like your entire being is screaming, no, but you still have to be able to pull the trigger. And I, and I really think that. That sounds good, right? Everyone listening is like, yeah, 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 that's, that's the right thing. But it's so hard to do. And I think in order to do it, you really have to dial in and have, we talked about mentors, a coach, the right people around you that you can go back, get rid of all the noise and say, okay, what are the principles of this deal? It, that Will it cash flow if this and this happens? What is the debt I can get? And really, and once you know your principles and you understand the downside, you know, understand where the risks are, you know, I knew that the jumbo loan was the risk there. But I had plans and had creative solutions of how we were going to get around it if we had the right buyer that just couldn't get the jumbo loan. And so I think understanding the risk, clearly identifying that, knowing what the home would rent for, knowing I had backup options. And, uh, you know, again, it just comes down to the fundamentals of the deal. If you know your fundamentals and you understand and can identify the risk, I think that's one of the best things you can do. And, you know, even today, and I'm interested to hear what Brandon says, but like the way we're able to separate ourselves is we can buy deals that don't fit other institutions box, either the year it was built, the crime ratio, the, um, you know, the unit size, sometimes maybe the unit size is too small for bigger institutions, but it's perfect for us. And so being able to creatively find solutions for deals that other institutional quote unquote, smart money won't buy. That's where I've made my living. And that's where I love playing, you know, it's just where no one else is able to operate and understanding the risk there and having creative solutions to those problems. Well, I love that, you know, earlier we talked about the importance of knowing your market and like really niching down on your market, but also like, yeah, that's exactly what we, how we operate as well is like, what can we be really good at doing? I'll give you an example. Uh, in the mobile home park space, there's a thing called septic lagoons. You ever heard of a septic mm -hmm. lagoon? It's like a lake. No. So th this yeah. mobile home park will just have a lake and that's where all the crap goes to literally. Wow. And like, it's a thing with tons of mobile home parks just have a septic lagoon. Don't go swimming in the lagoon. Like how far it's, away from like the right around mobile. the corner. Like they're, yeah, oh, like geez. they're just like, right. It's there in the park. And the septic lagoons are very, very common. And 
they scare me. Like, like Ryan Murdoch, my partner, has like this funny story where like he had to go to like this lagoon every week at one of the part when he man he managed it years ago. He had like go there every week and like do this test and like the EPA gets involved. There's all this drama, right? So we don't, we at Open Door Capital have chosen not to touch septic lagoons. We just will not do them no matter what. But you know what? If you were right now thinking you wanted to get into uh, mobile home parks and you were, you didn't want to compete with me, you know what I would do? I'd go do septic lagoons. I'd just get, cause like, I don't, I like, no, I don't want to deal with them. Neither does any of the other big operators I know. We don't want to deal with them. So when you can get really good at a thing that nobody else wants to touch, that's how you get in there. And you, it's not so risky then because you get it. You're like, oh yeah, septic lagoon. These are the five things to worry about. Here's how we test about it. Here's how we're going to deal with it. Here's how we're going to transform it, whatever. I don't even go there. So like you said, you, you find those little areas and this again works at every part of the market. It goes back to our entire kind of theme of today's show is how do you invest in a crazy competitive market? Get really good at some niche that nobody else wants to touch and you're going to be fine. Our, our niche is infill. We love the properties that are 30, 40% empty. Because I know I can put 30, 40, 50 homes a year into these properties because we're really good at that. It is incredibly difficult to do. We are really good at it. That's what we chose as our niche. So yeah, everyone listening, like, what's your niche? What's your weird thing that you can be better than anyone else at? And then go just crush that. I know, David, you help a lot of investors with house hacking. It's a weird little niche, like turning a single family home into something that can generate cash flow. But you guys crush it at that. And that's why everyone goes to you in the Bay Area that wants to do house hacking. That's exactly Yeah, right. I love that. It goes down to what Terrence said earlier, where you're solving a problem. You know, how much does it help identify and clarify the bullseye for brokers when you can tell them, hey, yeah. we will or won't buy septic lagoons, you know, and, yep. that, and that applies to David, you, I mean, everyone else listening. It's like when you clearly know what your box is and you can identify and you can clarify that to brokers and get them motivated, they go find me every deal that has a lagoon, septic yep. lagoon. Yep. Then they know and they bring it to you and there's no surprises, anything like that. Hey, go find me every home with the carriage house. And David's like, yeah, we can go do that. You know, a hundred percent, just being able to clearly identify here are the things that we do better than anyone. And knowing that I think that's where the value is, you know, and you just have to find your niche. Everyone there's, there's a niche out there for everyone. You just have to discover and spend the time, you know, getting to know your market, the players, and what is the one thing that you can do, you know, that separates you from everyone else. There's only certain teams that JJ Reddick can play on. He can solve a problem for that team. But other teams got the best analogies. Couldn't make it work. Dude, David right. needs to be a basketball coach or an announcer. No, what Brandon's got me thinking is I need to go. I want to go open a septic lagoon company where all these mobile home parks are. Yeah, I think I want to go compete yeah. with Brandon. I yeah, solved, no, I solved the problem for people who don't want to deal with septic lagoons. Right, yep. like oh, they're right. they're obviously hard for a reason. If you can have the company that can solve it better and cheaper, you'll be the only person getting all the business. Yeah. And it's not, by the way, there, there's so many sub niches in all of these things. Like, like even like if I think mobile home parks, there's the septic lagoon problem. There's like tenant owned home versus, uh, you know, each one owns their own home versus mm -hmm. I own the homes. Like there's all this stuff in a multifamily. Yeah. There's old properties, there's new properties, there's location, there's like you said, size. It's motel so conversions. Much. Motel. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. How many times have you heard somebody say like, like, I don't want to deal with a property where the owner pays the electric. Like I know personally, I hate that. I would not want to deal because then the tenants leave their windows open and the air conditioning running all winter long. Right. But I, like, that sounds like an opportunity. If you want to get really good at that niche to buy property that are master metered for electric, because you know how to deal with that. You know how to manage tenants to make sure they don't keep their window open. That sounds like a way to make money in a competitive market right there. So, yeah. hundred percent. Really good stuff. All right. Well, we got to get out of here pretty soon. But before we do, let's get over to our deal deep, deep dive. dive. 
We don't do this all the time and uh, only with our favorite guests. So <laughs> we're going to throw this out. That's not true. My heart but, is warmed. Yes. Uh, we, we ask it when we have time lately. And we have a little bit of time right now. We want to tear about tear apart a deal that you've done and not in a bad way. Just we want to dig into the details on it. So we're going to ask you a series of like seven or eight questions here about the property. So do you have a property in mind that we can dive into? I purchased a 135 unit in Des Moines, Iowa, late 2019. Des Moines? Yeah. Des Moines. Des Moines. Des Moines. Right. Des Moines. Yeah, Des Moines. Yeah. Yeah. Des Moines right. as is if you don't know yes. geography. Yes. Yeah, I exactly. want to hear Brandon pronounce Louisville. <laughs> yeah. That's my, yeah. I can't wait till we get into that. Louisville. Be, yes. We're, not, we're going to be the new rural of the David Green Bigger Pockets podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Remember those days? I, I remember do. those days. Next question. How did you find this deal? We found it. It was off market. A broker that we had just, he had just sold a smaller portfolio for us in Des Moines, called me and said, hey, there's this deal. This guy's owned it. He's really tired of it. Had high crime, high turnover. You know, it was in a part of town that we knew really well. Totally outdated, you know, tons of CapEx. It was right down the middle of our wheelhouse. And it was actually the first 100 plus unit building that I had purchased. And I was like really wanting to do a 100 unit deal. And I think we were under contract in 48 hours from that phone call. And uh, how did you negotiate? Well, actually, how much was it? I guess that's the next question. What'd you pay for it? What were they asking originally? And then what'd you pay for it? They wanted, I believe they wanted 4.2. And I said, look, I will write a contract for 4 million today and we will close in. I think it was 40 days. Nice. And he took it and we had it signed in two days later. I guess that's kind of how you negotiate it. So next question, DG. Yes. Um, how did you fund it? The bank, a bank, a local bank in Des Moines gave us 80% of purchase. So we had to come with, I believe, like $600,000, $650,000 of equity. So my partner and I brought that. And then we had construction of like 600000 that we funded over time. Okay. And then once it was purchased and you had some work done to it, what did you end up doing with it? Was this a flip? Did you keep it? Yeah. So Des Moines, because our basis is so low, we've held Des Moines. So we turned units. And when we purchased it, there was 35 units vacant. So we quickly got to work on the exteriors. We put a new sign. We did some landscaping. We did the hallways. We redid the office. So a new leasing office. We did the bathroom in the leasing office. Like you know, I wanted to make the exterior and the curb appeal. And when people walked in to sign a lease, I wanted to make that very nice and make it feel like they would want to live there. And so we put money into that first. And then once we got those 35 units done, you know, we've had two or three, you know, two or three a month that we've done. And I think we're at like 90% occupancy right now. And we're still, we're probably going to, we, I think we have 15 units left to turn and then the entire property will be turned and we hope to refinance it. Nice. What do you think it's worth right now? Because the question is the outcome. Like, like, what outcome do you see now, and where do you see it going? We've had offers in the six and a half million dollar range, and we think it'll appraise for somewhere around seven once it's fully stabilized. Which is still in Des Moines for 135 units. It's like 50 a door or something. I mean, it's the basis is still relatively compared to rents. The average rents there right now are 700. And how long do you want to hold it for? We talked about at the beginning. You know, there's a lot of liquidity. Yield is at a premium. You can get nothing in the mo- in your money market CDs. So you know we're pr- you know I believe our cash on cash is eleven or twelve or something like that. So you know we have no desire. You know it's one of those things. You know when you have an asset like that, you've done all the hard work for, and as debt's getting cheaper, and I believe our refinance quote was like two point seven maybe, and right now the debt is four. So we feel really good about that property, and you know we're just going to refinance it, put it like we talked about earlier, put it on ten year fixed debt, and hold it, and you know. 
maybe down the road we'll do something else. But right now it's printing cash and there's no, there's no reason to sell. When you say your investment basis in this is low, you're referring to the amount of money that you and your crew have actually put into the deal. So you don't have to get rid of it to pay investors back, right? That's right. Yeah. So the beauty of this deal is we had no investors. It was just me, my brother and our partner. And yeah, we bought it for, I believe, 29 a door, something like that. And then we put in roughly 10. So our basis is under 40,000 a door. And yeah, we feel, you know, really, really good about that basis because there's not a lot of supply. And, you know, I think the average purchase price in Des Moines right now is maybe closer to 60,000 a door. So uh, well below market. And yeah, we feel we feel really good about it. There's actually, Brandon, a mobile home park across the street that if you bought that would really help our uh, both get, properties. I'll get right. Actually, I like the Des Moines market. Uh, I like. That's a great market. Now, I'll send you the address. Seriously, it's uh, maybe it might be too small. It's 130 maybe uh, lots, but 100 yeah, units. Is does it have a septic lagoon? Yeah. <laughs> and are there infill opportunities? That's all he needs to know. That's it. We have some vacant land. We could probably figure out the there lagoon and the uh, and the infill opportunities. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's actually a really big eyesore. And I think I've even offered them like I'll pay. Let's like split the landscaping. Let's put a cedar fence. I mean, because it's just yeah. you look across the street and you just have like a butt trap. I mean, it's sad if you if we just they just put a little bit into the property. What we like to do with the mobile home parks too is like not that I mean we want to fix up the whole thing, but we put special emphasis on the front, right? Cuz you, you improve the front. Like we'll take out we'll put in brand new homes in the in the driveway like when you walk drive in there. It just improves the entire park just by having one or two brand new ho- houses and a brand new sign and yeah, it's fun. Let me tell you what Open Door Capital does is they take trailer parks and they create mobile home communities. <laughs> yes, that's what we do. So David could be a salesman for Open Door. He could also be a basketball coach. I mean, this guy has a lot of... You got a lot of upside, David. Thank you for that, Terrence. I'm a glad someone finally recognizes yeah. it. I'm I like Draymond Green it. in the second yeah. round of the draft. Like, how come That's nobody... right. A lot of value. You're the value you pick. It's not the sexiest pick, but it's the value. David's the value pick. This is great. By the way, David, not the sexiest pick, Green. Yeah, there you go. I like it. <laughs> My new nickname. Let me, let me just point out what just, what just happened there live on this call. Let me just point out this was cool. Right? So earlier, I established to... While networking... It happened to be on a live podcast, but while networking, I established to a real estate investor, Terrence, the criteria I was looking for. I don't want septic lagoon. I want, you know, larger parks, blah, blah, blah. He then triggered like, oh, there's a park right across the street from, from a property that I own. And then he brought that to my attention. What I wanted to point out was like, that's how you should be doing every day. Everyone you talk to It's just like, you don't, have to, you don't have to be weird about it and be like, Hey, Terrence, I need you to go find me a property. Like it was like, I had no idea that he might even have a possible lead, but that was just in the casual conversations of talking with real estate people. Like tell people what you're looking for, tell them what you want, tell them what you don't want. And then their mind's going to start working. Oh yeah, I got this property right here. So, you know, even if I, if I never buy that property, like it was still a worthwhile thing to do. So anyway, I, I thought it was kind of a cool picture of how like that should happen every day to you guys. And if not, you're probably not talking about real estate enough. It's mine. Thought. Yeah, well said. Thanks. All right. Well, final question. Last question. What lessons did you learn from this deal? The lesson that I learned was that just patience. You know, I think there was times during that deal that there was some crime and, you know, we definitely had some frustrations with getting some tenants out that weren't paying or that, you know, drug use. And, you know, it was a rough property. You know, it hadn't been touched in 25 years. There was people staying there that hadn't paid rent in six months, tons of hair on it, even maybe more than we realized. But, you know, we stuck with it. We stuck to our principles and we just knew that if we kept tenants abiding by the lease, hey, I'm sorry, you're late. You know, this is the lease. We have to follow the lease. We're going to turn, you know, we turn the units. We stuck to our budget. 
you know, the property's completely turned. I think it's drug-free. We've had much less crime activity. You know, the police have been really, I think, supportive of what we've done there and cleaned it up. And so, but there was definitely times where we were like, man, what are we doing? This is, you know, this is insane. You know, I can't believe we're dealing with this, this, and this. But uh, just patience. You know, you just have to trust the process and play it all the way through. You know, I think if we would have stopped at halftime, we were down 20. And, you know, we, we kept fighting. And, uh, you know, we stuck to our fundamentals. And I think, you know, the fourth quarter, we're up, we're up a lot and, and it looks good. I love all the analogies today. This has been a great analogy show. Um, sports, yeah. I think is the best analogy. You I have agree. to bring everything back to sports. hundred percent agreed. Uh, in fact, there's a book, uh, Mark Cuban's what's called like the sport of business or something like that. It's really good anyway. All right. Last question before we get to the, fifth. you know why he loves that book, Terrence, before Brandon says this. Well, because you and I learned everything we did about life through sports. That's the foundation. Well, Brandon did never play a sport. So what he's done is he's good at business and he says, well, business is like a sport, which is his kind of backdoor into the sports community, <laughs> which is equal parts brilliant and lame. I'm not sure how I should understand <laughs> it, but it's why he loves that book. I think what the truth is, is like you started with the foundation of sports, right? I started with business and then we just kind of met in the middle and now we're all, we're all there you go. sport business. Nicely friends. done. Great. Thank you. Uh, last question before famous four. Terrence, what do you need from our audience? Like, how can they provide value to you right now? Like, we're looking for deals, looking for, you know, whatever. What do you need? I don't have a sexy proposition to bring me deals like Open Door does, <laughs> but I would love for everyone to go and subscribe to the Bigger Pockets YouTube channel and love for them to tune in on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We have the multifamily tribe of mentors Q&A. We have property managers, lenders, Con, you know, people that specialize in construction for apartments around the country. We have some of, in my opinion, the top young operators. We've had some guys out of college, 21, 22, 23-year-olds that own thousands of doors all around the country that are just killing it. And they've, they've got a lot of valuable lessons uh, to take away. And so we do a Q&A where they can ask them questions on raising capital, on property management, on sourcing deals, and all the things that we've talked about here. And these guys are high energy, uh, even better, better sports metaphors than me and David. And, uh, and I think the audience will get a lot out of that. And the, the full length interview is going to drop on the YouTube channel, bigger pockets in May. And we're going to have, we're going to start with 12 interviews, but, uh, they can tune into the Q and a, uh, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 PM mountain standard time. We'd love to get their feedback. We'd love for them to tune in anyone that's specifically interested in multifamily and growing their knowledge base or their relationships and network in that space. Awesome, man. Yeah, it's a phenomenal show you guys have been putting out. That I've, been, I've been checking it out lately, and it's really good content, really good quality, really good uh, interviews and, and discussions. So, yeah, keep, keep crushing that. But now, thanks, man. let's get to the last segment of the show. It's time for our Famous Four. This is the part of the show where we ask the same four questions to every guest every week for the past 430-some episodes. So let's fire them at you right now. Number one, do you have a current favorite real estate-related book? Yeah, the best book in multifamily is really the Joe Fairlist best ever so book. Good. I don't even know Joe personally. He's not paying me to say that. It is the best book, the most thorough book on you know multifamily, how to underwrite, how to raise money, how to put the team together to do it. That's a fantastic book. I think I read it in 2016, and I've given it to every member of our team, and I think it's phenomenal. That's awesome, man. It is very, very well written. Next question. What's your favorite business book? By far, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Anyone that wants to be an entrepreneur or is an entrepreneur should read that book. It's a phenomenal story. I mean, I've worn Nikes, obviously playing basketball my entire life. And regardless of how you feel about the company, it's an incredible story of entrepreneurship, perseverance. And I love, I just love it. It's incredible. Yeah, it's 
fascinating story. Very well, very well written too. Like at first I was like, why would I want to read a book about a shoe guy? Yeah. It was incredible. Everybody says that. I got to check it out. People, really You got to like check it out, man. It's so good. Thanks, Terrence. All right. I mean, he's one of the only guys, just to give him another plug again, Phil Knight doesn't pay me for this, but he talks about Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and maybe someone else. I mean, he's one of the few guys that has had a personal relationship with some of the best athletes of our generation, our lifetime. I mean, knows them personally, was intricately involved with every single aspect of their careers. I mean, it's incredible uh, what that guy's been a part of and seen and experienced. But he doesn't yet know Brandon Turner, so he can't say <laughs> that he's got a mount. He doesn't have a Mount Rushmore yet. He needs uh, another head to go up there. That's with right. A huge wow. space underneath it for a long beard. I do think real estate operators should be sponsored in the near future by a brand, and I think that's coming. Brandon, you're probably at the top of the All list. All right, good. I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I to get... could negotiate it for you. If Can you, you want. get Nike to come sponsor me? <laughs> this is a great idea. Today's I, podcast is sponsored I think by in the near Nike. Just do it, Nike Real Estate. Yeah, Nike Real Estate. That's right. That's great. Special material, mm-hmm. different climates. <laughs> All right. Next question. Next question. What are some of your hobbies? I love to play golf. I love to travel with my family. Uh, my favorite place to travel is, you know, where my mom is from, uh, South Bogota, Colombia. My favorite city there is Cartagena. Anyone looking to go to Colombia should reach out. I've got a great, you know, we've got great hotel suggestions, restaurants. Again, I'm not being endorsed by any of them, but it's phenomenal. My favorite place to go, I think, for the value. David, it's just like you. It's the value play. Value play. <laughs> for the price, the food, the weather, the climate, it's the best. All right. So I love to travel. And then, you know, we're really involved with our faith. You know, we, we try and uh, be really involved with our local church, with missions. You know, we love giving back. We're involved with several non-for-profits here locally. And, you know, I think that's probably the most fulfilling thing that we do. That's cool. Yeah, we uh, like little known fact. Uh, Terrence and I actually have a mutual friend that we didn't know. I mean, like we figured it out at some point in the past few, couple of years. But uh, uh, Ben Pregnell from uh, Hope Chapel here, my my pastor, my church has been your buddy for a long time, which was a crazy coincidence. Shout out to Ben, yeah. two thousand eight basketball Maui. There we go. <laughs> a lot of great memories with Ben. Yeah, Ben's awesome, dude. Last question for me: What do you think separates successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? Shoe dog, Phil Knight, just perseverance. You just have to keep going. You don't lose if you never give up. And I think that's why I love that story so much is just he overcame incredible odds, never gave up. And I think if you just stick with it, that's the difference. Perseverance. So good. So good. Beautiful. All right, David, get us out of here. Tell us where people can find out more about you, Terrence. So our website is www.theverco.com, V-A-R-E-C-O.com, the value add real estate company.com. You can go there. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Terrence Doyle. Uh, we've been doing a lot of posting about the, you know, tribe of multifamily show. You know, I document a lot of the deals that I'm doing and challenges that I'm having and just very transparent about the ups and downs and also LinkedIn at Terrence Doyle. So I'm pretty active. We respond. I try and respond to everything as quickly as I can. I have two kids in diapers, so <laughs> sometimes that gets delayed, but uh, yeah, our website, Instagram or LinkedIn. Very cool, man. Well, appreciate you a lot. Appreciate you coming on here, sharing your wisdom and knowledge. And uh, like I said earlier, everyone will check out your uh, the tribe of multifamily, uh, or the tribe of multifamily mentors. mentors. I say multifamily millionaires, the trip mentors over on the Bigger Pockets YouTube channel, youtube.com slash bigger pockets. And uh, yeah, keep crushing it, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. And you're going to be on the show, right? July? I will publicly make that commitment now that I will be on the show because uh, we are going to be launching the Multifamily Millionaire book sometime this summer. I think July. I love it. And uh, we'll do a little book launch excitement Q&A interview then. 
and we're going to say that David's an investor, so we need David on as well. So, uh, and especially after his analogies, I really want you, the Q&A <laughs> for us uh, with you would be killer. I'll be anywhere Brandon Turner wants me to be. That's my point guard. He keeps being <laughs> okay, the ball. I'm not letting him <laughs> get too far guard. away. Right? When you play with Jason Kidd and Brandon pads your stats like Brandon does for mine, you don't let him get brought onto another team. That's smart. You're a smart man. Mm. The value pick. David Green, the value pick. There you go. <laughs> I love that. It makes me sound like the Sam's Club version of a podcast. That's hilarious. Dude, Sam's Club, they've made a lot of money. I don't think that's a bad thing. The uh, top ramen dinner of real estate. David Green. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Terrence. This has been a blast. You're an awesome guy, and I look forward to it. That was awesome. You guys are the best. Keep it up. This is David Green for Brandon Sandal Dog Turner signing off. <laughs> You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.